0: All right, we're going to get started again. Um, my name is Hung Shur, and uh, I'm the resident monastic here. Um, have been ordained as a Buddhist monk in the Chinese Chan tradition for low now 38 years. My goodness, but uh, on Sunday I was with uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who's here in California. And Ajahn Sumedho is, uh, if not the oldest Westerner in robes, certainly among them, he is 49 years in robes. So he has 11 years on me in robes. So. How wonderful that is. Anyway, uh, you have a songbook with you. And if you don't, you should have one. And I would like to ask you please to, if you would, to turn in that songbook to page 12. So, um, on page 12, uh, many of you, um, I think when your meditation gets to a certain point, people ask me, they say, you know, I really like to meditate, but what's next? What else is there? And if anyone follows their Buddhist interest, be it through the Thai forest tradition, which is familiar to the Vipassana movement, be it uh, Tibetan traditions or be it East Asian Buddhism, what you discover when you go back to Buddhist Asia is that the number one tradition is not meditation. By and large, people don't meditate in Buddhist Asia, at least in East Asia. They chant. Devotion is the number one practice. In terms of yoga, it's bhakti, bhakti yoga, where you pour out your heart in devotion in praise to divinities such as Amitabha Buddha or Guanyin Bodhisattva, the, the woman in red and the one the whole altar in the back is Guanyin Bodhisattva's altar. So the the notion of praise, which is not at all unfamiliar to to people raised in Judeo Christian traditions, is very much alive in Buddhist Asia. So page twelve gives us one of those. This is praise the Buddha, and uh, this particular tune, um, the 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 lyrics that is, comes from a praise that we do once a year on Wesak Day, on the Buddha's birthday, and it goes 天上天下无如佛，十方世界亦无比，世间所有我境界，一切无有如佛者, like that, which is. The first verse, upon the earth, below the sky, the Buddha has no peer. In ten directions, everywhere, he is beyond compare. Down at the bottom, the last stanza, I've searched around this whole wide world, and now I can declare, you'll never find a wiser one than Buddha anywhere. Why, yes, it does rhyme. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you, Mrs. Stotzenberger, my third grade teacher. What about in Toledo, Ohio? Now, what about those three middle verses? He's gone beyond duality. He's never born again. The Buddha had his last birthday when he came out as Prince Siddhartha. With wisdom bright, he blesses me. He knows my joy and pain. There's a sense that the Buddha goes right through the surface to understand what's going on inside. He walked the noble middle way there are people who will say that among the Buddha's uh, most significant accomplishments there are different opinions on the most outstanding but the middle way avoiding extremes is certainly a uh, hallmark Buddhist accomplishment. He walked the noble middle way with strength and purity in dark of night and light of day his kindness touches me. He's not divine, but he's awake. Anybody know the source of that line? That's, in Chinese, they call it a Gu. That's a a classical allusion. Not illusion, allusion. Right? It refers to a story. You know that story? Great story. They say that um, when the Buddha, the word about the Buddha's teaching ability and his wisdom started to spread um, in the forest and in the, the caves and in the plains of India, people started to flock to him, other sadhus and other devotees. And teachers would fall asleep at night surrounded by their 400 disciples and wake up in the morning all by themselves and see their 400 disciples across the river under that tree with that tall monk over there. You know, So this happened regularly and the Buddha had 1,250 disciples who followed him all of whom, by and large, came from other groups, right? So all of you Jubus, you're completely following tradition. So, you know. So, so um, one day a Brahmin, who was, you know, one of Shariputra's peers or one of, uh, maybe it was Subuti's brother or one of the teachers, just was so upset because he'd lost all his disciples. And he thought, I'll get this upstart he saw the Buddha approaching on the road, and he thought, ah, my chance. And, you know, India, India has this tradition of debate where, you know, the fastest repartee is the one who, who wins the day. So this Brahman was walking along, and he said, ha! He said, I've been meaning to ask you, tell me, are you a god? And one of the best parts about this story is I get to be the Buddha, you know. So, so. you all can check my accent, see whether, you know, So the Buddha said, no, I'm not a god. Well, well, are you a demon? He said, no, no, I'm not a demon either. Are you an avatar? No, I'm not an avatar. The Brahmin's getting more and more rage. What are you? He said, the Buddha said, I'm awake. And the Brahmin put his palms together and followed him under the tree and sat down and, you know, became one of the chief disciples. So so he's not divine, but he's awake. That whole story is in that one line. He's neither come nor gone. He is Tathagata, one who has come thus. I find him in each blade of grass. He is the wisdom son. And you know the tune. And the small cameras on the walls will be recording if you don't sing.
1: On the earth below the sky, the Buddha has no fear. You're not singing.
0: Now, um, I have been uh, lecturing on Buddhist texts for some uh, 25 years now. And in, in the Chinese tradition, in the Mahayana tradition that comes through China and then went on to, to Korea, Japan, Vietnam, and now on to the West, we pretty much divide the various ways of practice into five. They're called the five schools, roughly. And it's not a clean, neat school with, uh, you know, with pedagogy and stuff. But it's, by and large, if you say, how do people practice? Well, certainly we do meditate. Zen is the Japanese pronunciation of the word chan. So people come up to me and they go, are you, are you, a, are you a Chinese chan monk? I said, no, 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 they're... They are. Are they? Sorry, are you a Chinese Zen monk? And I say no. They, they're actually Japanese Chan monks. So, but when uh, Gary Snyder and Allen Ginsberg and and Kerouac and all went to uh, find Buddhism, they met Zen because after Mao, the bamboo curtain fell over China after forty nine, and monks didn't get out. So we met Zen. First, but the Zen is the Japanese version of Chinese Chan. So, but the Chinese can't claim it because Chinese Chan is the Chinese version of Indian Dhyana. So, ah, when you encounter Buddhism, you have all these languages and centuries and millennia of good and wise men and women practicing this tradition of looking within. So, meditation, the jnana. Kind of yoga is a big part of the Chinese Mahayana tradition. As I mentioned, the bhakti phase, devotion, is also large. Um, we also have what's called the, the secret school, the Mi Zong, the, uh, I guess it would be the Chinese Vajrayana, although it gets really complicated because my Tibetan Buddhist friends say, no, 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 don't call us Vajrayana, we are Tibetan Mahayana. Have you all got that straight? So, so it's the Chinese Vajrayana, meaning mantra-based, mantras and mudras. So we, we start every morning here at the monastery with uh, half an hour of mantras. And every uh, Mahayana monastery in the world begins the day by putting the Sharangama mantra, the great compassion mantra, the ten small mantras, Om Mani Padme Hum the Mantra of the Heart Sutra, gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisattva. You've heard that. That's that's the mantrayana, and it's a distinct school. There are people who only practice those mantras all day long. Um, We also have a school called the Vinaya School, which pays attention to the uh, virtue of the Buddha's rules. In the Benedictine, if anybody was raised Roman Catholic, it's the Rule of Saint Benedict. In uh, in the Chinese Mahayana, it's the Pratimoksha, and the Vinaya Pitaka. One third of this canon back here is the sutras, shastras, Vinayas, right? Texts spoken by the Buddha, commentaries on those texts, and then the organizing rules of the community, and the personal ethical precepts that you follow. So that's all. In there. So there's one entire school that's devoted to studying the Vinaya. So, Chan, Pure Land, devotion, Mantrayana, the Vinaya, and there's one more. And it's the school that pays attention to the Buddha's sutras, the words the Buddha spoke, what he actually said. And the literature, as you can see, fills the wall. There are 1,600. Texts that have the word sutra at the end. Some are very short, some are quite long. And my teacher, the late Chan Master Shenhua, Hua, uh, spent 90 minutes of every single night he was in this country lecturing on texts. So after 30 years of that, we kind of got the impression that Buddha's sutras were important, that it was good to pay attention to those. Because he said, listen, I want you to hear the Buddha's voice. Does the Buddha speak English? Well, that's up to you how well you translate, how diligently you translate. So we are endeavoring to guarantee that the Buddha indeed does speak English. At least readers can read what the Buddha said in English. So that's my identity as a monk has a lot to do with uh, becoming what over there at GTU and the Holy Hill is called exegete. I am an exegete, one who does exegesis. If you're Jewish, it's called Midrash, right? And I do Midrash. Lots of heads nodding there, right? So um, every Saturday night, every Sunday night, I'm opening up the texts and explaining the Flower Garland Sutra, the Jing, the Avatamsaka Sutra, which is this vast body of literature. And so, you know, we who begin, I started with Zen, I actually went to Kyoto in 1969 to find out if Zen was still alive. And sure enough, I found uh, Antaiji, where Uchiyama Roshi uh, was teaching. And uh, that was, as far as I knew, that was Buddhism. You know, it was Zazen, sitting on your Zafu and not wiggling, you know. And uh, that was a good place to start. But only after I pursued it and said, what's next? You know, is there more? did this whole landscape of Buddhist practice open up? So I would encourage everybody to continue to explore. Is there life after meditation? Yes, indeed. Once you get up from the cushion, there's a whole lot more to do. So by and by, uh, after 30 plus years as a monk, I'm defining myself more and more as a kind of a religious storyteller, telling sacred stories and... Let me do that, if you would please. Open to page 35. And I have to say it was James, James Barras, who started me on this, uh, on the musical side of it. Um, people who know the story, James celebrated his 50th birthday on this stage. And uh, he pulled out his old Gibson guitar, this battered guitar. James is a folkie. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, And he took his Gibson guitar and sang, Teach Your Children Well. And everybody in the room, you know, who ordinarily might be at each other's throats about the news or about politics or something, were singing like angels, like a choir. Teach your children well, their father's hell will surely go by. We're all that generation, right? Crosby, Stills, and Nash, kind of, with exceptions. So, you know, and there's more to learn. So that's There's time for you yet. Anyway, it was, I looked at that. I thought, wow, that is an expedient means that really speaks to our folky generation, you know. So um, at that point, I picked up my guitar after 25 years of not touching musical instruments. And uh, so for a monk to play musical instruments is on the edge, kind of, you know. And people, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, you know, who is another one of those senior bhikshus like Ajahn Sumedho, Everybody, we had a, a sangha conference in Sacramento, and here was Bhikkhu Bodhi and, and I had brought my guitar, and everybody was kind of going, "What's Bhikkhu Bodhi going to say? You know, <laughs> is he going to like boycott Hungshur's music? You know?" So, so I I sang uh, Sunita, the the Teragata, the t- these Teragatas are these incredible poems of the original disciples, and the Terigata are written by the Buddhist nuns. Incredibly powerful, ancient religious literature. So I was singing about Sunita, the last uh, arhat to get enlightened. And uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi was sitting right beside me. And I was done. Everybody's waiting for his comment. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, You know, if, if there was one rule that I would ask the Buddha to change It would be the one that says monks can't play music. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone's going, ha! So, all right, so on page 35. Master Xu Yun, Empty Cloud, Shu Empty Yun Cloud, was my teacher's teacher. He's my grand teacher. Lived to be 120 years old. Absolutely verified. Powered by vegetables. <laughs> Not Big Macs. Not fish. Uh, no milk. Hmm. Interesting. Vegan. So, how about that? He uh, did a pilgrimage across China to repay his mother's kindness. She died in childbirth. And his pilgrimage took him from Putoshan on the East China Ocean, three steps and one bow, three steps and one bow to the ground, three steps and one bow to the ground, all the way across China to Wutai Shan, to Five Peaks Mountain, in distant Shanxi province, 3,000 miles. And he did not get enlightened as a result of that which he you know was hoping that might happen but his intent was to to repay his mother's kindness doing some hard work and transferring the merit to her so he was now uh, 45 years old uh, living on a place on a mountain called uh, 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 what's it called Zhongnan Shan Zhongnan Shan is not too far away from uh, this monastery, where they announced a 10-week birth or death do-or-die Chan retreat. And these 10-week Chan retreats are quite intense. You just sit and sit and sit 13 hours around the clock with with breaks to walk in between. And uh, so on his way, on foot, he didn't have any money and it was springtime. It was the the water had melted off the mountains. So the rivers are really high. He didn't have money for the ferry, which is what most people did to get across the river. So he was hiking alongside, and he missed his footing and fell in the river. And he bobbed down the river for two days before it, because the banks were steep. And a fisherman fished him out and caught a monk in his net. You know, it was not what he expected. So... so, uh, they took him to the local monastery for him to recover. And he said, I, I'm carrying the registration requests of all the hermits on the mountain. I've got to go. And they said, but you, you nearly died. You're nearly drowned. Just rest. You know, why? just rest. No, no, I've got to go. I, they might not register it. And I made a promise. I said, okay. So they sent him off. And he arrived at the monastery where the Chan retreat was happening, more dead than alive, right? And so they looked at him, and he was China's most famous monk at the time. And they said, oh, you've come. We have to ask you to be the proctor for the retreat. You'll sit there with the incense and the, 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 the stick, you know. And he said, no, 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 I just want to meditate. Don't give me a job, you know. I don't want to be administrator. I want to meditate. And they said, but you know the rules. He said, I just got to meditate. I can't do it. He didn't mention that he nearly drowned in the river, you know. So what are the rules? If you get asked to be an administrator and refuse, they have to beat you. Why? Because nobody would do it if, you, if they didn't have some, you know, enforcement. Everybody, everybody wants to, everybody hates administration, you know. So, so, monks are like that too, yeah. So so they had to beat him and now he's like bleeding from every and and... His, mind you, his ego was also taken a beating. So, although it seems like quite a personal disaster, in fact, in terms of meditation, it's not so bad to just have, you know, uh, karma come out of the sky and beat you into submission, tenderize you, you know. So, So he was there meditating, and three weeks passed, four weeks passed, five weeks passed, and he was feeling very light and no obstructions. And at night, the last meditation sit before midnight, uh, the verger, this young man, came along with the uh, teapot, the iron kettle teapot, to put some hot water in his teacup for that last sit. And in the dark, misjudged, and splashed the hot water on his hand, he dropped the teacup, it went, and he was instantly enlightened. And he said, I've awoken from a dream, he said. And like any good Chan monk, the first thing he did was write a poem about it. If you're a Chinese Chan monk, you have to write a poem when you get enlightened. And I've included it for your edification. It goes like this. Bei zi pu xiang sheng ming li li, Xu kung feng sui ye, xiang kuang xin dang xia xie. He said, The cup hit the floor with a ringing sound and echoed in the air. Empty space, too, broke to bits. My mad mind stopped right there. Okay, and being an extraordinary Chan monk, he wrote a second poem, which goes, burned my hand, shattered my cup, broken for good my mind. Like my family, it's lost. People are gone. Words are hard to find. Okay? Looking the void right in the face. Right? That is not despair. It's beyond despair. It's utterly empty. Right? There's nothing. His mind shattered. He and empty space are one. Right? The ego is completely transformed and subdued. So he and all living beings are one substance now. Broken for good, my mind. Like my family, it's lost. People are gone. His wisdom takes him right through. He's deconstructed reality entirely, right? However, the principle goes that in the middle of what's called true emptiness, there is also wonderful existence. Life itself is a gift. Without asking for it, spring has come. The flowers breathe their fragrance to the sun. Mountains, rivers, the earth itself are just the thus come one, the Buddha. So, true emptiness, wonderful existence, don't obstruct each other. When it's truly empty, then you see that all of this is a gift. Just put out your hand and it's immediately full. So, here's a wonderful Chan poem. And I thought, wow, we got a song there. And I left the Chinese so people could get a sense of uh, the original to hear that poem. And uh, it, it does us good to hear some a language spoken by, you know, a quarter of the world. So.
1: Shu she The cup hit the floor with a ringing sound that echoed in the air. Empty space. Broke two bits and my mad mind stopped right there. Rezi Pu Lo Di, Shang Shang Ming Li Li, Xu Kong Fang Sui, Huang Xin Dong Xia Xie.
0: Shattered my
1: cup, broken for good my mind Like my family, it's lost People have gone, words are hard to find Like Pete Seeger would say, everybody! shang shang ming, li, li Shukong, fan, sui, ye. Quang xin dang xia xie. Spring is here, the flowers breathe their fragrance to the sun, mountains, rivers. The earth itself are just the thus come one fades of beauty. Shang shang ming li li xu gong fan sui ye kuang xin dang xia
0: xie. So that's um. Sean Monk by way of West Virginia, I think. So, so. so um, people who are regulars in James's group over the years have noticed that uh, the last three winters, I haven't been here. And uh, I've been going over to Australia uh, in January and spending four months in a In the the Queensland bush, just in the southwest, southeastern Queensland, right where it meets uh, New South Wales at a place called Gold Coast. Mujeraba is the town. Anybody know Mujeraba? Any Aussies here? No? She's right, mate. Or as they say, no worries. It's not, you're welcome, it's no worries. N-A-O-R-R-I, no worries. And if they really mean it, they say, no drama. No drama. So, means okay. So uh, there I am. And recently I've been teaching undergraduates at Bond University, believe it or not. Kind of cruel and unusual punishment when you're 64 years old to get in a class with 33 21-year-olds who are like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And of the 33, 30 are Americans, right? Three Aussies and 30 Americans. Mostly on their... Uh, Sophomore, junior year abroad. So these are brilliant, blessed young folks, you know. With uh, first of all, their folks send them to Australia for you know for the junior year, mostly, and uh, they haven't done a lot of challenging the stories that they were given. By and large, some are already gears are turning, but a lot of them are just, you know, fresh out of of uh, fresh out of home and of the embrace of the university, you know. So it's it's really fun to to start to get in there and challenge some of the assumptions. So one of the first, uh, I'm teaching Buddhist philosophy for these young people. And one of the first questions I ask them is who is in charge of your life? And Interestingly enough, of the 33, uh, nine of them were Roman Catholic. Probably bears out across the U.S., probably percentage-wise. So I said, all right, I will ask you, if I were to say, when you make a decision, when you actually have to choose, who determines the answer you you finally come up with who's in charge could it be that it's actually god's will and they're going oh boy this i thought this is buddhist philosophy so i said well if it was god's will what does that mean it means there is knowledge of the consequences the outcomes And your choices are guided by a higher intelligence. Think of it as a big data bank. And it's distinctly male, right? Long beard. And somehow his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me, right? Even the tiny bird does not fall out of God's loving gaze. How many people would say that's the answer to the question? Who's in charge of my life? And some of the braver kids go, well, that's true, isn't it? You know, I was always told that. They're good. I said, that probably, if you're honest, is probably the answer that most people would give once they start really thinking about it. So I said, now, I know there are some of you here who are not Catholic, who were raised secular humanist, who were raised uh, with no particular tradition, or some of you who may have been raised in a Hindu context And the answer to who is in charge of my life is fate, destiny, right? Destiny cannot be changed. In other words, there is some knowledge, there is a database that is aware of what should happen in my life, and it has nothing to do with me, I can't affect it, but it's happening without my consent and... There is an answer, but it's revealed to me, and that's it. Destiny cannot be changed. Fate. It's just fate. Forget it. It's inexorable. How many of you, I say, would come up with that answer if really pressed? Who is in charge? So in other words, nobody, but something is. Fate. Unchangeable. And a few go, well, Sometimes. You know. But not always. Is it? You know. I said, well, that's, some people might give that answer. I said, there's another, another choice. How many people would say, when asked the question, who's in charge of your life? The answer is the luck of the draw. Nobody. It's entirely chance, it's random. Just out for fun. How many tonight? Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. It's random. In other words, it's not a being, supreme being. It's not some impersonal data bank like fate that knows the answer but operates beyond your control. Nobody's in charge. No control. There's, you know, from minute to minute to minute to minute, second to second, it's all... Conditions gone, you know. And again, I I asked them, the answer was, well, sometimes, but not, that doesn't, I don't think so, because sometimes I really feel like there is something else happening. And I said, Would you like to hear the Buddha's answer to that question? And they're like, Yeah. The the Buddha's answer to the question is maybe not an answer you want to hear, because the implications of it kind of pinch, which is, You're in charge entirely. And it's not Buddha circle R, you know, Buddha copyright. It's not the Buddha didn't invent this. He said, he observed it. That between heaven and earth, here among humans and other living beings, cause and effect is the game. Do nothing, nothing is done. Do anything and you plant a seed. Good and bad. Karma is in charge. And as soon as I said that, introduced that word, I saw their faces. Oh, yeah, karma. It's just karma, you know. And I said, it's Not what you think. I said, If you plant tomatoes, you get tomatoes. If you plant watermelon, you get watermelon. If you plant beans, you get beans. It's not the case that if you plant watermelon, you get beans, right? And if you don't plant, you harvest. Not. Good, a life that you want to live, a life of virtue, a life of blessings, a life of opportunity, comes from what I do. There are no mistakes. Why do I say it pinches? Because you can't blame God, fate, luck or anybody else for what happens to me and flip it over if i want to live a life with those kinds of advantages i can grow it i can grow in my garden plant those seeds and the results arise just like crops so that's what the buddha reported it's a garden, and we're the gardeners. Or, it's a movie, and we are the scriptwriter, director, producer, actors, audience, reviewers, critics, and buyers of the DVD. You know. When it comes, goes directly to bin. You know. So. That's interesting. And I said, what do you think of that answer? And they're going, but that means that, you know, it's like I have to take, oh man. (laughs) So yeah, yeah. So I said, the nice thing about that is it's entirely fair. It does not privilege anybody. And if you want good results, plant good seeds. It's like, oh. What are the possibilities there? Okay, so time is running, screaming by here. I would like you to turn, please, to page 22. What about when things come to you that you don't want? Is it, is it inexorable? Is it like that's all you can do? Or do we have, can we influence that garden? And in the Mahayana tradition, not so much in the Theravada, I talked to Ajahn Amaro and Pasano about this, and they say, well, we do have something similar, but it's not quite the same as the Dharma of Repentance. And this is a verse of repentance that comes from a bodhisattva, Samantabhadra, who is this individual. He's also there with his elephant. And he's a bodhisattva who is called the repentance host, kind of a confessor figure in the Mahayana. And he's there modeling uh, the results of wholesome, uh, wholesome deeds and wisdom and compassion. And when you repent, not guilt. It's not guilt. It's cause and effect. It's like I planted that side of the garden with nettles, and every time I go out there, I get stung, and I'd like to pull them out and replant. Can I do that? And Samantabhadra says, please, you know, here's the seed. (laughs) You know, you plant, you do the work. So this is the way that in the Avatamsaka, this sutra that I lecture, this repentance verse comes. And I did that same pilgrimage that Master Empty Cloud did. And every time I bowed, this is what I recited. So I've recited this verse probably two million times in my life. But I did it in Chinese. This is the English translation. And see what you think. This is public domain. This is, these are the Bodhisattva's words. You could say the Buddha's words on what to do when things you want to change in. For all the harmful
1: things I've done With my body, speech, and mind From beginningless greed, anger, and stupidity Through lifetimes without number. To this very day I now repent and I vow To change entirely For all the harm
0: Everybody wants to try
1: with my body, speech, and mind. From beginningless greed, anger, and stupidity, through lifetimes without number, to this very day, I now repent.
0: Change entirely. It's not guilt. It's different. It's cause and effect.
1: For all the harmful things I've done with my body, speech, and mind, from beginningless grief. Anger and stupidity Through lifetimes without number To this very day I now repent and I vow To change entirely I now repent I vow to change entirely,
0: Peter, Paul, and Mary popularized early morning rain, remember? So, um, If that principle works, then when we're faced with a world that seems to be exploding, we've got troops on the ground in Gaza. We've got airplanes shot down out of the sky. We've got a hole in Siberia in the permafrost that looks like it's a methane explosion. And they've looked at it and it can only have come from below. It, it wasn't a meteor, it's this huge football field size hole, which they say is the, they think, may be the precursor to the methane fields rising up and heating up the globe like by four more degrees very, very, very quickly, because that permafrost was holding on top of methane gas in swamps in Siberia. Melting now. And we have the Brazilians hating the Argentinians and the Argentinians hating the Brazilians and everybody kind of happy about the Germans, kind of happy, you know. And, uh, you know. So it's a world of heat and Jerry Brown, bless his heart, let us know that it is the hottest year in California since records were kept. Not going back. What's going to suddenly make the water fall out of the sky and the temperature cool off again? Good question. What if this is it for California? We're letting our lawn go, by the way can't water these four patches of grass. This is the only grass in central Berkeley. All the dogs love us. And we can't stand there with a hose. So it's going to go. We'll put native plants there. So what's our share in this? I I found a very interesting article that I wanted to share quickly. Time is speeding past. This was on a, a website called One Green Planet, and One Green Planet said, I thought it was worth noting, that um, in California, the title is, Who's Using All the Water? And uh, the answer was, um, 93% of the water in California goes to Agriculture. Agriculture. And of the, thir- the thirstiest users of that water goes to meat, goes to livestock. Um, the statistics here, this is legit, this is just researched with footnotes. Four percent of California's water is individual, meaning if you cut your shower down, you're maybe doing a little bit of good Um, Where was that statistic? Uh, Let's see here. It's good to turn the tap off a little more. Most people shower every day an average of about seven minutes of hot water with the shower head flowing out two gallons of water a minute. The Water Education Foundation calculates that every pound of California beef requires 2,464 gallons of water to produce. You would save more water by replacing a pound of beef with plant foods than you would by not showering for six months. Are you up for it? How much do you love your Big Mac? So uh, household impact is a trickle compared to the flood of water needed to produce meat, dairy, and eggs, especially when compared to plant foods. A study at Cornell found that producing one pound of animal protein requires 100 times more water than producing one pound of grain protein. Another study adds to the overflow of evidence finding that the amount of water needed to produce one pound of beef is almost 1,600 gallons compared to 102 gallons for a pound of wheat. And that pound of beef goes into how many hamburgers versus how many loaves of bread and pancakes and grains you can make polenta out of, you know. So it's a time when you know, Buddhists can say, eh, we do fine reducing the harm. You know, I eat a harmless diet. You say, are you a vegetarian? I'm, I eat a harmless diet. Right? Just get that V word out of the conversation. People don't want that. But if you say, I eat harmlessly, I eat in a way that keeps the water for more people, then it's like, that's that's good. That's a share of reducing the harm for all the harmful things I've done with my body, mouth, and mind from beginningless greed, anger, and love of that burst of flavor when I chomp down on a steak through lifetimes without number to this very day, I now repent and I promise that I'm going to look into alternative sources of nutrition that also don't lead to colon cancer. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, just a word to the wise, right? To the, to the Buddhist, to the wisdom of the Buddha. All right. Oh, those monks shouldn't preach. All right. So, would you turn, please, as our last song, uh, to the back, Dedication of Merit. This came from a Buddhist Catholic conference at Our Lady of Grace uh, Benedictine Monastery in Beechgrove, Indiana, Eight days after 9-11, after the two towers fell, we were doing, the, the Buddhist-Catholic dialogue has progressed so happily among the monastics to the point where we published a book called Benedict's Dharma. Buddhists common on the rule of St. Benedict. And we were there for the book launch with 150 Buddhists and Catholics eight days after the towers fell. and You remember the planes were grounded Churches. This place had 300 people standing outside the windows, wanting to come in for a month. We had uh, the uh, Moroccan Imam here, Yasser Chadli, playing his oud and singing. Was anybody here for that? Do you remember that? That was how long ago? 2001. So 13 years ago. And uh, James was here, and Alan Sanaki, and uh, anyway. So. The monastery, the, the convent in Indiana had 300 people. All the local folks came. And uh, the, the the Benedictine nun, who was the organizer, said, you, you Buddhists do the dedication of merit. She said, do one for us this time. So we translated our Chinese dedication of merit and uh, gave everybody the sheet and explained that we you, we do it as part of the the Theravada liturgy, the Abhayagiri liturgy. Here, you know, may the goodness that arises from my practice and from this act of sharing—that's it. That's the dedication. So we translated our version, the Chinese into English, and said we all filed out around the statue of the Holy Blessed Virgin in front, and I said, now everyone's heart not only is full of terror. It worked but we're also full of rage and grief and a nameless kind of sadness. And it's good to let that go. And the way you do it is the mind can't hold conflicting emotions or thoughts. So consciously give all of that conflicted emotion back to empty space and at the same time, the goodness that comes from being together with wholesome Dharma friends, like here tonight and every week here, Uh, with the East Bay Insight community. Um, Send off that goodness to where it's needed. Where is it needed? Where you want to send it. It's your wish and this is a practice of the bodhisattvas. I dedicate my merit to fill in the blank and the the bigger you can send it the farther it goes. With the wish that fill in the blank. That's how the dedication is done. So, where do you want to send off your merit? When we do it together, it gets real strength. So, that's, uh, that's what I'd like to invite us to do right now. And uh, this is uh, the translation, and it's, it's, we'll finish our, our evening tonight. And again, uh, thank you for inviting me to be with you. I came downstairs. <laughs> so, commuting to work, right? From upstairs, so... So please make that wish and we'll dedicate the merit.
1: And bright. If people hear and see, our hands and hearts can find in giving unity. May their minds awake to great compassion, wisdom, and Find reward. May all whose sorrow leave their grief. And pain. may this boundless light break the darkness of their endless night. Because our hearts are one, this world of pain turns. compassionate And why may all become compassionate And why
0: Good night everybody. Who's in charge of your life?